Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. You can find that on page 1016 in your pew Bibles. So it's 1 Peter 5, 1 through 11, page 1016 in your pew Bibles. Um, Please uh, stand with me as we read the word together. So Peter says, starting in verse 1 of chapter 5, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You can have a seat. So our text this morning comes from Ephesians 6, um, verses 10 to 20. You can find that text um, in your pew Bibles. It's on page, um, it's on page 979. So Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, page 979 in your pew Bibles. But before we read that, uh, I just want to step back and... And, and reflect on that text that we just read in 1 Peter again. So, in 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter tells us that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And I wonder if we really believe that's true. Like, not just will we academically, like, will we theologically recognize that that's true. I hope that we will. I mean, do we really believe that the devil is out there seeking to undo us, that he is looking to wreak havoc in the lives of those who claim the name of Christ? I'm sure you're aware that uh, earlier this week on Wednesday evening, a young white man entered Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and he walked into a prayer meeting that night. And according to reports, He sat there for around an hour um, with the folks who were meeting. And then after that time, um, he opened fire uh, and he murdered nine um, black Christians who were meeting there to pray and study the Bible. So we should acknowledge first that this was a racist act. This doesn't seem to be motivated by religion. 
could have been, but first and foremost, um, what was committed here was a racist act of ter domestic terrorism, as I've heard people saying. But that doesn't mean that the devil couldn't have been at work here. You see, Satan and his allies, they war relentlessly against us, and they'll do anything they can to tempt us to doubt God, to tempt us to run from God, uh, and to tempt us to sin against the Lord and others. In Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, Paul wants us to see that. He wants us to recognize that we are at war, and he wants us to take action. And in the text, he's commanding us to do three things. One, be strong in the Lord. Two, stand firm in God's armor. And three, persist in prayer. So before we look at those, let's now read the text. So Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, it's page 979 in the Pew Bibles. So starting in verse 10, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can ex extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So what's well, obvious uh, right from the bat in this passage in verse 10, Paul begins with the word finally. And so this tells us that we're going to have to play a little catch up uh, to catch him in his train of thought here and to really understand the full weight, to grasp the full weight of what he's saying. So to do that, let's, let's step back and look at Ephesians as a whole. Now, don't worry, we're not going to go verse by verse through the whole letter. You're not going to be here until like 4 o'clock. Uh, we're going to look at um, a summary of Ephesians. And so in Ephesians 1 to 3, Paul's doing something very, very powerful for his audience. He's writing to a largely Gentile audience, and he's reminding them of the glorious truth that God included them in his plan to unite all things in Jesus. Paul says that for these individuals, there was a time when they were separated from Christ. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and they were strangers to the covenants of promise. They had no hope. They were without God. But through Christ's sacrificial death, through his resurrection and ascension, They've been brought near to God. They've been united in Christ along with all believing Jews who trust Christ for salvation. They've been brought from death to life. They've been adopted into God's family. They've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. 
and they've been sealed by the Spirit, meaning that the Spirit will preserve them until the day they enter heaven and worship the Lord forever. That's great news for his audience. He's saying, look, God sent Christ to die for you, and he has reconciled you to himself through Jesus. Take that to the bank. Like he's encouraging them with that truth. And I think that should be encouraging for us too. This isn't just for Paul's immediate audience. Like, and think about this just in light of what we read in chapter 6. So the devil and his allies want to harm us. They want to see us fall. They want to see us run from God, and they'll do whatever they can to try to make that happen. That being the case, how great is Ephesians 1 to 3? Paul is reminding us who we are. He's reminding us whose we are. We're the Lord's. And so if you're trusting in Christ for your salvation this morning, you have been brought from death to life. You have been adopted into the family of God. You have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's your identity. That's who you are. Jesus's righteous, united in Christ. So in a world where the devil wars against us, we need that. We need to remind ourselves of that every single day so that we can stand firm. So Ephesians 1 through 3, it's important to take a look at that when we go to 6 because of the foundation that it gives us. We need to know who we are when we read Ephesians 6. But we can't stop there. In Ephesians 4 to 6, Paul continues on and he shifts from what some call like indicative truth. So Ephesians 1 through 3 is indicative truth. It's telling us who we are. But Ephesians 4 to 6 uh, make up imperatives. Paul's now commanding us how we should live. And so we can't stop simply with chapters 1 through 3. We need to go on to chapters 4 through 6 and see how to live. And so there Paul tells us that we need to walk with Christ. Believers, Paul says, are to put off their old selves and put on the new. We're not to commit the sins that once characterized us. Things like anger, stealing, bitterness, wrath, slander, sexual immorality, drunkenness, and a host of other sins. Instead, we're to be imitators of God. We're to be characterized by love, by unity, by encouragement, by thanksgiving. And so then when we get to chapter 6, when we get to verse 10, Paul is continuing that line of thought, built on 1 to 3, but continuing the line of thought telling us how we should live. And so when we get to verse 10 of chapter 6, Paul is now saying, stand against the schemes of the devil. So he's pressing in further here. He's urging us to be strong in the Lord, to stand firm in God's armor, and to persist in prayer. And so look with me again at verses 10 to 13 as we look at our first point. Be strong in the Lord. So Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So here, right off the bat, I think Paul is reflecting language that he's used in chapter 1. So flick back with me, if you've got your Bibles open still, to Ephesians 1, verses 19 to 23. So keep in mind that Paul's just said, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then now in Ephesians 1, in verse 19, Paul says uh, that he wants, um, he's praying that God would help Christians. And then in verse 19, know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So do you see the connections that are there? God raised Christ from the dead according to his great might. The same might in which Paul tells us to be strong in Ephesians 6. And what's more, according to that great might, God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him in heaven far above all earthly powers. He mentions far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. Those are allies of the devil that Paul mentions in verse 13 of chapter 6. So Paul's telling us to be strong in the Lord's might, the same might that he used to raise Jesus from the dead. He's telling us to be strong in the Lord's might, the same might with which God, through Christ, has already defeated the enemy. Paul's not calling us to operate in our own strength here. Paul's calling us to operate in God's strength, the strength that God graciously gives us. He makes a similar statement in Colossians 2, 13 to 15. You don't have to turn there, but Paul says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. And then catch this. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to debt and put them to open shame by triumphing over them and him. So again, what's that mean? Paul's encouraging us here. We might be tempted to read Ephesians 6, 10 to 20 and think, ah, oh, the, the devil and his allies, really? Like they want to see me fall? How can I stand against that? If we're thinking that, those are the wrong thoughts. Like you don't read Ephesians 6, 10 to 20 and come away with that. We shouldn't. We should read Ephesians 6, 10 to 20 and come away with confidence and come away with boldness, come away with thankfulness. The enemy has already been defeated. God has already, through the cross, thrown him down. And that's not a reality that we experience in full right now. So that's why Paul can say that we need to stand firm against the devil. But one day we will. A day is coming when Jesus will return and finally crush the head of the serpent and put him away forever. But until that time comes, Paul's calling us here to stand up and fight. And he's telling us to fight in the strength that God gives us. This is an incredibly encouraging passage. And this is why Paul can say in, uh, f in chapter 4, verse 26, speaking of how the devil wants to work in our lives, 
Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. The devil is seeking to undo us. The devil is seeking to use people, circumstances, our own temptations against us. So Paul is serious when he commands us to give no opportunity to the devil. He's serious when he tells us to put away our old ways of life, the sins in which we once walked. He's also serious that we put on our new self. And here, he's calling us to put on God's armor. He wants us to be able to withstand in what he calls the evil day. That refers not, not simply to the present days of evil in which we live, although it does, but I think it also refers to those specific times in our lives when we feel evil most keenly, when we're most tempted to sin. So do, so do you see the picture here? The Lord has already triumphed over Satan. He did this through the cross and seating God and seating Christ at his right hand. Satan has already been stripped of his power to accuse us. But the fact remains that the devil roams around this earth like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. And so we need to be serious to obey the command here to be strong in the Lord to rely on him, to rely on his might. We need to seriously obey the command to put on the armor of God. And Paul's going to explain what that looks like in a minute. Um, but we need to seek the Lord because the battle is real. The danger is real. But we have God on our side, and so we shouldn't fear. And I think one thing uh, as well that we need to do uh, in response to uh, at least these opening verses here, but this text as a whole, um, is, is take a moment, take the time to actually acknowledge the reality of the battle. C.S. Lewis, he says uh, in the preface to the Screwtape Letters, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. I think he's right there. So if we're going to stand against the devil and his allies, we have to admit that they exist. Now, that may seem like an odd or obvious point to make here, um, but I wonder if all of us are together on this. Maybe you don't want to seem strange uh, to, and admit that uh, there are evil forces out there that would love to see us fall. Or maybe um, you see real evil committed in our world. Uh, evil committed by individuals like this man in Charleston who murdered these people praying in the church. So you might see this and you might want to attribute blame where it belongs with the individuals who are in the wrong. And so the last thing that you'd want to do is pass the blame onto some spiritual entity that you can't see. So that might be where some of us are, but I want you to know, we don't have to land there. Uh, that doesn't mean that we can't uh, admit that uh, the devil exists. So Paul provi provides some help for us. He says in verse 12 of chapter 6 that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but he's not claiming um, that the devil doesn't exist. He's not claiming that there's not uh, sinister realities out there seeking to undo us. Instead, he's helping us look at the deeper reality that's present uh, in our world. 
behind the deceitful schemes of man, a phrase that Paul actually uses in chapter 4, verse 14, in reference to false teachers, are the schemes of the devil. The phrase that Paul uses here in chapter 6, verse 11. And Paul actually says this outright in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Speaking there to believers, he says that we once followed the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. So, if you are hesitant to recognize the reality of this spiritual war that's occurring, uh, know that uh, you can see it and that you're not passing the blame off onto the devil. Like, make no mistake, this young man who walked into this church in Charleston is responsible for what he did, and he needs to face the full weight of the law for it. But Satan could still very well have been at work there, scheming, plotting, looking for ways to harm the cause of the gospel, looking for ways to undo believers. And so we need to recognize that this is at work, and we need to run to the Lord and rely on the strength of his might to help us. And we should as well, looking to our second point, Stand firm in God's armor. Look at verses uh, 14 to 17 of chapter 6. There Paul says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So here Paul's now explaining what this armor of God looks like. He's told us to be strong in the Lord's might. He's told us how to do that by putting on God's armor. And now he's telling us specifically what it is that we're to put on. But before we look at these individual pieces of armor, uh, there's one thing that we need to see. When Paul mentions the armor of God... He's not simply recalling the Roman armor uh, with which his audience would have been familiar, Um, but he's pointing to something stronger. He's recalling language from the book of Isaiah, and he's specifically commanding us to put on the armor that God himself wears. Now, we'll we'll look more specifically at how that works as we go through the pieces of armor, but before we do, think about how encouraging that is. It reinforces the fact that we're not fighting this battle in our own strength. We're fighting in the Lord's strength. Paul's not saying to buck up and get out there and fight. He's telling us to put on the armor that God himself wears and get out there and fight. So we're not going in our own strength. We're going in the strength of the Lord as we put on this armor I think that that should be incredibly encouraging to us, and I hope that we'll see that as we keep working through these individual pieces. So looking specifically to the armor, in verse 14, Paul says, to stand, having fastened on the belt of truth, which for the Roman soldier, it was likely a leather apron worn under the armor. Um, So having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. These pieces of armor um, are both references to Isaiah. Both of them show up. So regarding the belt of truth, in Isaiah 11:5, Isaiah speaks about the Messiah to come, and he says this, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, 
and faithfulness or truth, the belt of his loins. And uh, for the language of the breastplate uh, of righteousness, that comes from Isaiah 59. Uh, In that text, um, the people of God, they own up to their sin. They're crying out to the Lord for help uh, in in the midst of a situation where sin is just running rampant. And the Lord comes to their aid. And so in Isaiah 59, verse 17, God puts on righteousness as a breastplate and he brings salvation for his people and judgment to those who are harming them. And Paul mentions truth and righteousness at other points in Ephesians too. For example, in Ephesians 5, 9, he tells believers, walk as children of the light for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. So, uh, the, um, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, they show up in Isaiah as armor that God himself and the Messiah wear. And Paul calls us in Ephesians to put these on. And I think what Paul's calling us to do is he's calling us to stand against the schemes of the devil by putting on truth, the opposite of falsehood, and righteousness. I think that's a reference to holy living. So can you see why these two, char- these two characteristics are so essential in our daily battle? In John 8, Jesus says that the devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Falsehood and unrighteousness are the devil's garments. And he would love to see us wear those proudly. But as believers, we're to put off the old self, rely on the Lord and put on the new. So this week, take time to consider whether or not you're walking in truth, whether or not you're walking in righteousness. So if the Lord reveals sin to you there, quickly repent and run to him He stands ready and willing to forgive you. And if you consider this this week, uh, or if you're hearing this now and you're not a believer, let me implore you to run to the Lord and find salvation and find forgiveness. This mighty God who equips the saints with his armor is ready and willing to forgive you and adopt you as his son. He's ready and willing, willing to seat you with Christ in the heavenly places, to seal you with the Spirit, to give you forgiveness and new life. So turn from your sin and trust him. But let's continue looking at these pieces of armor. So in verses 15, Paul mentions another piece, and he tells us to put on as shoes for our feet the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So again, this too, it's a reference to God's armor in Isaiah. In chapter 52, verse 7, God declares that his people will know his name. And then Isaiah writes, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. And Paul, again, talks about peace elsewhere in Ephesians. In chapter 2, he says that Jesus is our peace. And listen to this, uh, that Jesus came and preached peace 
to you who were far off, that's the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that's the Jews. Do you see that connection with Isaiah? So in Isaiah 52, Isaiah says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. And then Ephesians 2, Paul says that Jesus came and preached peace. So again, we're to follow in the Lord's footsteps here. We're to operate in the strength that he supplies us. And what this is calling us to, I think, is to be ready to share this gospel of peace. Now, you may have noticed that the word stand occurs multiple times in this passage. I think it's four times Paul tells us to stand against the schemes of the devil. And so it may seem odd now to, to hear about this readiness to share the gospel and think, you know, you may be thinking, how does that jive with Paul's call to stand? To stand is a defensive stance. To share the gospel, to take that forward is an offensive stance. And so there may seem to be a disconnect there, but I don't think that there is. Um, listen to um, Peter O'Brien in his helpful commentary on Ephesians reflect on this. He says, quote, standing firm can also involve carrying the attack into enemy territory of plundering Satan's kingdom by announcing the promise of divine rescue to captives in the realm of darkness. So God is calling us as peacemakers, as, as those who have been um, made at peace with himself through Christ to take the gospel of peace into a world where darkness reigns. This is, this is phenomenal news. So when we hear this gospel of peace, when we turn from our sin, when we trust Jesus, we ourselves have peace with God. But not only that, Paul says in Ephesians 2, we have peace with each other. The gospel of peace not only um, gains uh, a, a vertical um, reality, peace with God, the gospel of peace also has horizontal realities, peace with one another. When, when as believers, we have put on the gospel of peace, any hostilities that would have existed among us before are broken down, just as the hostility between us and God when we're saved is broken down. And Paul wants us to get this, and I think that that should pump us up this morning. Like we have been given this great gospel of peace, and the call is to take it into the darkness as, as, as O'Brien says, the call is to plunder Satan's kingdom. That's what we're called to do. This is a war. And it's a war that we should gladly, boldly in the Lord's strength fight. So I think that that's a call for us this week to do this, to share the gospel with those who don't know it. Do you want to see light spread throughout North Wilmington? Do you want to see the devil's grip loosened in our city. I sure do. And here's how we do that. We take the gospel of peace into the darkness and watch hostilities be broken down. This is good news that we're taking, but this isn't the only armor that we're wearing. Paul mentions two more pieces in verses 16 and 17. There he says, to take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the devil's flaming arrows and take the helmet of salvation. So the shield that Paul has in mind here was likely a really large one that covered the whole body. 
Um, but again, he's also referring to the armor of God himself. Again, Isaiah 59, verse 17, when the Lord brings salvation to his people, Isaiah says that he put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation, his, and the helmet of salvation on his head. So the Lord is commanding, or um, yes, the Lord is commanding us here to put on the shield of faith and also this helmet of salvation mentioned in Isaiah 59. He's commanding us again to put on the armor of God, armor that God graciously gives us. And so I think when Paul is commanding us to put on the um, shield of faith and the helmet of salvation, he's telling us to put on faith and salvation itself. Importantly, these are two words that come together at another point in Ephesians. And in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, Paul's celebrating God's work of making dead sinners live through faith in Christ. And in verses 4 to 8 there, he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So Paul is speaking to a group of Christians who have been saved by grace through faith. And so when he commands them to put on sal- or when he commands them to put on faith and salvation, he's asking them to press into gifts they've already received. He's calling them to trust the Lord, to keep believing the gospel, to continue clinging to the promise that God has seated them with Christ in heaven and united them in Christ. The devil doesn't want us to think that way. He wants to remind us of past sin that's been forgiven. He wants to tempt us to doubt God's good promises. He wants us to forget what God's done for us in Christ. But Paul here won't let us. As we put on the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation, we aren't forgetting. We are daily remembering what God has done for us. And so how can we respond, though, when the devil attacks us like this? Well, first, I think we need to fight him with Scripture. And so if, if, if you are tempted in this way, if you are tempted to doubt what God has already claimed of you in Christ, if, if you are tempted um, to be reminded regularly of past sin and to be plagued by past sin that's already been forgiven, go to Scripture. Fight with the Bible So Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, I think that could be a really good start. So over the next couple of weeks, if this is you, let me encourage you to memorize that. And when you are tempted to think about the past in unhelpful ways, when you are tempted to sin in the present, take Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 right to the devil's doorstep. Remind him who you are, what God's already said of you. Follow Martin Luther's guidance on this. I love how Luther talks about this. Uh, He says, When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? 
Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made a satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Take that to the devil's doorstep when you're tempted. When you're tempted to remember past sins, remind him of what God's already said of you. Remind him whose you are. And this final piece of armor that Paul mentions, this is clearly an offensive one. He says in verse 17, to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, this is a reference not to a long sword, but to a a short-handled sword that would have been used in close combat, which I think could say something about the nature of the battle that we're fighting. Um, But this isn't just any old sword. This is the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit. And like we've already said with many others, uh, with many other pieces of armor that Paul has mentioned here, this again finds its roots in Isaiah. In Isaiah 11, 4 to 5, Isaiah prophesies that the Messiah will come and judge the wicked with the rod of his mouth, a phrase that literally means with the truth of his word. So again, if we take up the sword in battle, we're using the same weapon that the Messiah himself wields. But what exactly is the word of God referring to here? Is it referring to the Bible as a whole or something different? Um, Well, I think it certainly could refer to the Bible as a whole. But um, again, I found Peter O'Brien's commentary really helpful here. It It was very helpful just throughout the study of this passage. And if you're looking for a commentary on Ephesians, I should highly commend that to you because it was so helpful for me. But he says in reference to the Word of God that the, the term used for word tends to emphasize the Word as spoken or proclaimed. And for Paul, the Word of God often refers to the gospel. And so given the context then of spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6 and the connection with Isaiah O'Brien ultimately concludes, and I think he's right here, he says, quote, What is in view here is not some ad hoc word addressed to Satan, as though what we speak against him will defeat him. Rather, it's the faithful speaking forth of the gospel in the realm of darkness, so that men and women held by Satan might hear this liberating and life-giving word and be freed from his grasp. Like, that is huge. Like, again, that has ties to the gospel of peace that we're supposed to carry forward. We have a good gospel. And, and do you see how all of this here is connected? God and Christ triumphed over the enemy. Jesus went to the cross and died for sin. And as Paul says in Colossians, there put the devil to shame. He disarmed him of his ability to accuse us. Jesus has already won the victory, but this fight continues. Satan has not been completely finally thrown down. He will be, but not yet. And so in the meantime, we are to stand and fight, and we're to take this good gospel, and we're not only to remind ourselves of it every day, we're not only to remind the devil whose we are, but we're to take this good gospel into the dark world in which we live. And so as we do that, we are taking light into the darkness. We are preaching liberty to captives. We are preaching a message that can set people free. Like This is big time, big news. 
And so I think that, well, I mean, if nothing else, we should leave here this morning with Ephesians 6, Bible in hand, and be ready to take it into the world. Like, why would we keep this to ourselves? We can't. We shouldn't. Part of the armor of God means that we're taking this to the world. So let's do it, and let's do it with joy and boldness, with gladness. And one thing that we need to mention here is that this armor, this isn't just applying to us as individuals. This armor, this call to be strong in the strength of the Lord, this call to put on the armor of God, it is for us as individuals, but it's for us corporately here. Like, this is a call for us, Bethel. Like, we corporately need to put on the armor of God. I mean, can you think about how the devil might seek to gain a foothold among our congregation here? Think about some of the sins that Paul's already mentioned in Ephesians, sins in which we once walked. Things like bitterness and slander. Things like anger. It, it doesn't take us very long to see how the devil might try to gain a foothold among us through bitterness, anger, slander. Sins like that. And so we need to put on the armor of God corporately as a church so that we, Bethel, can stand and fight. This isn't just us as individuals. This is all of us. We all need to unite together and stand and fight. And we need to do this in the strength that God provides. Again, he's not asking us to do something um, on our own power. He is giving us the power. He's giving us his own armor to do this. We have all the confidence in the world. And this isn't just for us individually. This isn't just for us corporately. Um, but one additional word that uh, I think that we need this morning, dads, this is for us. So in light of Father's Day, I think that we need to recognize that, men. Again, it is not difficult to see how the devil would like to gain a foothold among us through our dads. Guys, we have a serious calling. We are to be the shepherds in our homes. We are to be loving our wives well. We are to be shepherding our kids. We are to be modeling the faith in front of them. We are to take that faith into the world and to take that faith here and live it out. This is a high, important calling for us as fathers, and we need, we must take that seriously. And I think something that's super encouraging to me here at Bethel is how we are united in this purpose. Um, here in a few months, and, and I can show these to you now, um, but in July and in August, we're going to be giving three books away. And um, dads, let me encourage you, when we do this, take these books, read them, and put them to work in your homes. One is leading your child to Christ, Biblical Direction for Sharing the Gospel by Marty Machowski. He's a pastor in the area in uh, PA. And this is a phenomenal book about what it looks like to share the gospel with your kids, what it looks like to lead your kids um, to salvation in Christ. Another one, and these, well, these two are both related. We're going to give these away at the same time in August. One is how to talk to your kid about sex, honest and openness for a sensitive subject. The other is raising sexually healthy kids. 
We're going to be giving both of those away as well. Men, read these. Use these in your homes. Use these to help equip you as a dad. Shepherd your kids. Preach the gospel to them. Push back the darkness in your own house. And talk to your kids about um, sex. We live in a highly sexualized culture where if we wait on this as dads, we're going to miss the opportunity to be first responders in our kids' lives. We need to be sharing with them from Scripture what sex looks like, what God has to say about it, and the beauty that's there, and also the danger that's there when we take God's good gift and distort it. So these three books, we want to come together as a body to equip dads, myself included, And so when we give those away, take those. But one additional book that I'll mention, and we're actually giving this away today, um, and uh, an older couple in the church graciously donated these books to us um, for families with young kids. And they wanted you to know that if you'll use these in your homes, parents, these are free for the taking. And so after the service is over, Mike Saunders is going to be at a table in the foyer, and these books are on there. It's called Everything a Child Should Know About God. It's a small, systematic theology for kids. Whitney and I have been reading this with James at night, and um, it's very simple. I mean, you can read these. If you just read one at a time, you can read these in a matter of minutes. So this isn't a huge commitment if you use, if you use these every day. But this is huge. It's, it's giving us, as dads, the opportunity to tell our kids about God, to tell our kids about Jesus and what he's done for them. And so dads, take these books after the service and open them up in your homes. But let's take that role seriously as fathers. Satan would love nothing more than to watch us fall there. And then lastly, our last point here, persist in prayer. So in verses 18 to 20 of chapter 6, Paul says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So Paul finishes by encouraging his readers and us to pray. And it's important to note here that prayer isn't simply another piece of the armor that Paul's mentioned. Rather, prayer is the discipline that should characterize us as we're putting on the armor. So prayer, uh, in a sense, serves as a foundation for the armor that we're to put on. To maybe put it another way, if we plan to put on the armor of God and fight, we must be people of prayer. So prayer is vital for Paul in this text. And Paul knows this. Paul knows this personally. Like if you read Paul's letters in the New Testament, Paul is a man of prayer. Paul's a man of prayer here in Ephesians. In in Ephesians 1, in verses 3 to 14, he spends the time praising God for what he's done for the saints, praising God for this good work 
uh, of salvation that he's done for people, this good work um, that has its goal of uniting all things in Christ. And then in verse 15, he erupts in prayer. Paul is a man of prayer. He knows that he himself needs it. He's writing Ephesians from prison. He says, I am an ambassador in chains in verse 20. And so he's asking for prayer that he could declare the gospel boldly. He knows that he needs it, and he knows that we need it. Notice, just in these verses, how many times uh, all is mentioned. So in verses 18 to 20, he's saying praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. We need to be people, people of prayer. And so, in this fight that we are in, let's be sure to pray diligently. Pray for um, each other as well. So, we're not only to pray that the Lord would give us strength in this battle, but if we're to live out what Paul is giving us here in verses 18 to 20, we're to make supplication for all the saints. This again communicates to us, we are in this together, Bethel. We need to be praying for each other. And so earlier, we talked about how we need to understand and acknowledge that this fight is real. Acknowledging that this fight is real can be a motivator for us to pray. We need to pray for each other that we won't fall into the schemes of the devil, that we'll be able to withstand. But we can pray in hope. So don't hear that and think that we are somehow in jeopardy. Remember the good news of this passage. We're operating under the mighty hand of God. God has, as, as believers, God has sealed us with His Spirit. That's a guarantee. God will grow us in the faith. But rest assured, at the same time, the danger is real. This is one of those areas where we need balance. We are, as Christians, secure righteous in Christ, but also we are fighting a daily battle that's real. And so we need to press on. We need to fight. We need to do what Paul says, be strong in the Lord. Put on God's armor and stand firm and persist in prayer. Families that were left behind after this tragedy in Charleston they're, they're showing what it looks like for us to put on the armor of God, I think. I don't know if you all have been watching the news or uh, reading, reading the articles that are coming out um, um, that have said what these individuals, these hurting families, have said to this man who killed their loved ones, but it is just miraculous. It's just miraculous. So um, the family members were murdered on Wednesday night, and then on Friday, some of the family had an opportunity to address this man. And I, and I just want you to hear what one of them said. But what he says uh, is a reflection of what, of what they seem to be saying as a whole. They're offering this guy mercy. They're offering him forgiveness. They are imploring him to turn to the Lord and be healed. Like, that's not natural. Like, people don't naturally do that. That's spirit-empowered strength. And so listen to this quote. This gentleman says, 
to the killer, I forgive you and my family forgives you, but we would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters the most, Christ, so that he can change it. Change your ways no matter what happens to you and you will be okay. You better believe that Satan hates speech like that. Words of mercy in response to acts of evil, that is taking the fight to his doorstep. So let's learn from these believers, Bethel. Let's put on the whole armor of God and stand ready and fight. And let's take this good gospel to our community. Not just for us individually, but let's take it out to the community and boldly share it. We have such good news to share. We serve a triumphant Savior who one day is going to come back and crush the serpent's head. We have the victory. So we need to move forth in boldness. And so we're going to sing a song in a moment that um, uh, where we're confessing this together. Um, I'm, I was telling someone even this morning when um, Beryl and I were talking about the song, um, I, you know, I knew generally, I think, that it referred to the armor of God, but the more that I looked at it and thought about it this week, my goodness, like the song that we're getting ready to sing, O Church Arise, is about the armor of God. Like this is our confession. And so let's sing this um, confidently. But before we do, let me pray. Father, we praise you for the good word that you give us. That though the devil and his allies may war against us, um, we can win the battle. That you give us your might, your strength, your armor to put on. And so, Lord, I pray that we would do it. I pray that you would give us the faith uh, to, to look to you, to believe you're a good word, uh, to fight uh, in a world filled with so much darkness. And so, God, please be changing us. Help us to keep believing in the gospel and help us to take this gospel to a world who is far from Christ. And so, God, be with us now, even as we confess to you uh, this desire, our desire to put on your armor and to work in the strength that you supply us. In Christ's name, amen.